Hey everybody, this is CJ. Welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast, episode 63. This is part six of our coverage of the American Revolution, and this is going to be kind of a different sort of episode than the ones I've done so far, where it's been mostly historical narrative, and the analysis that I've done has been tied into the narrative kind of as we've been going. I'm going to call this one Reflections on the American Revolution, uh, somewhat consciously with a nod towards Edmund Burke's famous uh, book, Reflections on the Revolution in France, which was a primarily very critical evaluation of the French Revolution. And while my evaluation of the American Revolution is not nearly as negative overall as Burke's of the French Revolution, nonetheless, you know, I've, I've got some pluses and minuses that I see. And this episode is going to be kind of freewheeling. It's going to be a little more stream of consciousness, maybe even a little more random. So putting the danger back in Dangerous History Podcast in a very real sense. I'm not going noteless, but I am using fewer notes and much less detail and a lot more improvisation than in the previous episodes in this series on the American Revolution. So bear with me. I hope it'll come out okay. I hope it'll still be thought-provoking and entertaining, and if nothing else, will at least help you get through your, your run or your mowing the lawn or your commute or whatever it is you're doing when you listen to this. So going to be a somewhat miscellaneous and random hodgepodge of observations and um, lessons to be learned. You know, some of it will tie into things I've already talked about. Others will be um, new observations or, or analyses, at least new insofar as not things I've talked about explicitly in this series before. So without further ado, let's get rolling. Let's jump into it. And again, I, I just want to stress, you know, this is, I'm not putting any of this out there as like definitive gospel. These are just sort of my observations and also sharing some additional uh, sources and perspectives you might want to consider in relation to all this stuff. This is obviously a very big, very complex topic. And even with the amount of time, I mean, these have been huge episodes relative to my previous episodes that I've been doing on this. And this one will be a little bit shorter, but um, even with all that I've done on the American Revolution in this series, believe it or not, I've still only scratched the surface. So anyway, uh, first thing I want to mention and point out explicitly is that I think the war began with patriotism but ended with more nationalism. And what I mean by that, what I mean in terms of the distinction between patriotism and nationalism, I would say that patriotism is a much more kind of healthy and organic sense of love or appreciation for one's homeland, for one's you know, friends and, and relatives who live nearby, for one's culture, for everything from... The, the food, the way of life, the way of, of speaking to the physical environment of where you're from. And I think this is entirely natural. It tends to be local in nature. It tends not to be, you know, huge and directed towards big abstract nations and whatever. This organic, natural sense of patriotism. It also tends to be defensive rather than offensive. In other words, it, it can motivate you to defend your home when it's truly under threat from outside. But... This organic, genuine patriotism is not the type that motivates you to want to crush other people, to show how awesome uh, that, that your society is and your way of life is. So 
for a good example of kind of what I mean by patriotism in this sense, that's illustrated in fiction in a place where probably almost all of you are familiar with either from books or movies or both. Think of the hobbits in Lord of the Rings and think about their attitude towards their home, right? The Shire, the hobbits definitely have affection for their home, for where they live, for the geography of, of where they live, for their way of life, their friends, their family. And obviously they're willing to do things, including risk and sacrifice, in order to protect that. That's what motivates the hobbits to go on the quest they go on in Lord of the Rings. But if you pay attention to the movie and especially the books, the Lord of the Rings books, the hobbits are definitely not blindly obedient to some state. In fact, the, the Shire hardly even has a state, the way Tolkien describes it very explicitly. And they did not conflate loyalty to some government with affection for their homeland and their people. In fact, go and read if you never have. There's a chapter in the third and final Lord of the Rings book entitled The Scouring of the Shire, or The Scouring of the Shire, I guess is how you would say it. And this is a chapter not depicted in the film. And you'll see something very interesting that I think I know why it's not in the film. It's explicitly um, anti-socialist and even anarchistic in nature. The hobbits come back from their quest to find out that a bunch of basically socialist goons have taken over the Shire and are running it for their own benefit. And the hobbits, since they've been, since they've developed all this uh, courage and skill from their quest, these hobbits are not going to sit by and let their their homeland be taken this way. And so they actually stage an uprising against it. You know, plot spoiler, sorry, but uh, go read that chapter of the third Lord of the Rings book if you haven't to see what I'm talking about. The hobbits love the Shire, but they never try to beat down other peoples in other places because of it, right? They never claim that they're the best or that they have a right to use offensive violence against people unlucky enough to have been born elsewhere. That would be nationalism. Nationalism is when you take a, a perfectly benign, healthy patriotism, this affection for the locality in which you reside, and it gets perverted by powerful people and interests into nationalism. Nationalism is loyalty to a large abstract state, and it's pushed to the extreme of not just, you know, being proud of where you're from and wanting to defend it if it's truly threatened, but wanting to beat down others in order to prove your superiority. That's nationalism. So anyway, back to the American Revolution, the war, if you'll recall, started with people from small town in rural New England mobilizing in a, in a clearly defensive fashion to protect their uh, friends and neighbors and neighboring towns to protect their immediate you know, property and vicinity. And that's why these farmers and shopkeepers fought so well. But by the end... Once you've had some state building going on, once you've had some propaganda campaigns going on, and especially once you've had the Continental Army built into a large, massive, hierarchical, centralized, sort of a typical European-style military, you've, at least to some extent, taken that healthy, organic patriotism. While it's still clearly present and still 
uh, in the early Republic period, most Americans had more, more loyalty to their state and locality than to the federal government. But nonetheless, there was a revolution, at least in the minds of some Americans, performed during the war where more and more their inherent organic patriotism is being co-opted and redirected towards institutions like the Continental Army. Um, it was never really co-opted effectively by the Continental Congress, but the Continental Army did, you know, kind of absorb a lot of people's natural patriotism, and in particular towards the person of George Washington. And this this was a deliberate PR campaign on the part of many national politicians. Remember, I think I mentioned before that they were willing to look the other way at some of George Washington's military shortcomings because of what they perceived as the PR and morale benefit of having this, you know, lofty figure that everybody's supposed to look up to and respect and worship and all this sort of thing. Speaking of the Continental Army and uh, mutating patriotism into nationalism, it is not a coincidence at all that many of those who served in the Continental Army, especially those who served as officers in it, ended up being in the post-war era staunch Federalists, meaning of the party that first wanted to create a more centralized government by writing the Constitution, and then afterwards continued on in electoral politics, attempting to steer the constitutional system towards the most um, the most big government and pro-centralist interpretations of that document possible. So again, patriotism is small scale. It's it's directed at like real people and places and things. It's local. It's organic. It's healthy. It's not usually belligerent. It's usually uh, defensive. If, if ever, you know, it's violent, it's defensive. Like, hey, we don't want the orcs to come ruin the Shire kind of a thing. Whereas nationalism is much more directed towards big things. The, the state itself, right? Uh, national, political and military heroes, quote unquote, and nationalism tends to be a lot more offensive than defensive. America, fuck yeah, kind of a mindset, right? Let's go kick the shit out of some smaller country just to show we're awesome, just in case anyone forgot. That's already there in the post-war era. It's not nearly developed to the degree that it is in, in modern times, for sure, but it's already there, waiting to be exploited. And all the territorial expansion that occurs in the 19th century is clearly a, um, a consequence of this nationalism, as is the not-so-civil war, of course. Next thing I want to say, and, you know, part of my French, but I have to speak honestly Respecting someone for genuine qualities and or achievements is fine, but have some fucking self-respect and don't engage in hero worship. Don't. Hero worship is something that has always been favored by the powerful in order to keep you down. And if you don't believe me, go study some ancient history going all the way back to the Neolithic era and the Bronze Age and look at where, you know, art and literature really first came from. It basically came from the kings and the pharaohs and the emperors hiring guys to use art and literature to depict them as great men. And then by default, to depict everybody else as small and insignificant. 
in a propaganda effort to basically make regular people feel like they're powerless and they have to have great men lead them. You can go back and look at ancient art and you can see the king, the pharaoh, or whoever is always depicted as giant. He's enormous. He's bigger than everybody else. And then, you know, just the regular people, the soldiers or the scribes or whoever that's being depicted around him, they're smaller. They're like half his size. And of course, we know that, you know, Egyptian pharaohs were no larger than anyone else in Egypt at the time. But it just shows you how the propaganda machine has been cranking along pretty much since there's been things like art and writing. It's been co-opted by the powerful in order to reinforce their position and keep them secure. The last thing they want regular people to realize is that the, the powerful are no better than them. And in fact, in, in many ways, they're worse, at least from a moral standpoint. Hero worship, as it is typically uh, encouraged and practiced by people, is a tool to keep you in your place. Now, there's another version of it that's not, I wouldn't call it hero worship, where you admire people who really do accomplish good things and great things or, or people who are have admirable qualities. They're very skilled at something or they have, you know, something really admirable about their character. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that can be a much more positive, uh, positive and empowering thing, right? That's where you know, you admire someone who's great at something you want to be great at. And you say, oh, look, that person's great at this. They're a human being just like me. They put their pants on one leg at a time. Their shit does stink, right? Whatever. And so you, it's empowering. You realize, hey, I can be great too. I can do epic shit too. I just have to put in the effort and do what, what it takes to, to accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish. So there's just like there's patriotism and there's nationalism, there's these two different approaches to admiring people. There's the hero worship of, oh, these are great men and we must carve their faces into mountains and bow before them and build monuments to them and wave incense and repeat endless quotes from them that are not true and repeat endless anecdotes about them that are not even true and totally black out all the bad shit in their life story and so on. But, you know, that's that's the bad version of hero of interacting with with heroes that is designed to keep you down. Then there's the more positive of, hey, I'm going to admire people who have done great things or or are good at stuff. That's there's nothing wrong with that. And it's empowering because you realize when you look at it in this non-hero worship way, I can be great too in my own way. Whatever it is, you know, I'm good at or that, that I want to develop, I can be great too. So yeah, I know I've got some Dangerous History podcast episodes that I've done at least a couple so far that I've called DHP Heroes. But as I think I said in those episodes, I don't hero worship in the sense that most people do. And even the people I have done and plan to do in the future, DHP Heroes episodes on, I am the first to admit they all have flaws, they all have problems, they all have things about them that I don't admire. And I chose to call those sorts of episodes DHP Heroes, honestly, because I thought it was just kind of a short, catchy thing. But I really just meant not that these are people that we should all worship. Like, I'm not trying to say, oh, instead of carving Abe Lincoln's face into a mountain, we should carve uh, Carl Hess's and Lysander Spooner's face into a mountain. Not, not at all. What I meant 
uh, when I put together those DHP Heroes episodes that I've done so far is really just I wanted to talk about people that I think are underappreciated by most people for their qualities or their achievements or both. And not in any way that these are my gurus or my complete life role models. And for damn sure, I wouldn't get at all angry if someone criticized or pointed out the flaws of somebody like, for example, Lysander Spooner or Carl Hess. That's usually a pretty good litmus test to find out if somebody is just admiring someone who's done a good thing or if they're in hero worship la la land is if you point out some negative things about the individual, uh, do they react angrily and emotionally or do they react in a, in a more reasonable fashion? So, for example, someone who's a big George Washington fan, when you point out real things about him, facts that are, you know, not real positive, uh, that don't reflect well on the man and that challenge his perfect reputation, how does the person, um, you know, the Washington fan you're talking to, how do they react? Do they react with, oh, gee whiz, I never knew that about George Washington. Wow, that that's kind of bad. Huh. Wonder why I never heard that. Well, maybe I don't, you know, admire him quite as much as I did before. Right. Or do they respond with getting all butthurt and emotional and you hate America and, and so on. Right. That's how you can tell if they have the emotional visceral reaction. That's a person who's in hero worship Kool-Aid drinking land. So imagine how many propagandized and bullshit inculcated Americans who didn't have the slightest clue about the real facts of someone like George Washington might react on pure emotion to any criticism of his actions or his character or any attacks on the official myths of him, right? The sacred mythology. So I would humbly suggest to you, though, that if you are going to have people that you respect and look up to for one reason or another, um, as I, for example, do respect the figures that I've I've chosen and will choose to do uh, DHP Heroes episodes on, please, for the love of all that's holy, don't pick the same damn people everybody else picks as heroes. Because one thing that I've learned from studying dangerous history for a long time is that whenever, quote-unquote, everyone agrees that so-and-so is a heroic demigod, in most cases, that ought to be a bright red flag that... You're probably dealing with someone who's got some serious problems somewhere in their story because the state and all of its affiliated institutions, they don't give you real, honest, good heroes to worship. They don't build monuments to people who are actually good. That's not their gig. That doesn't serve their interests. And, and just in general, for that matter, most of the time, whenever everyone agrees about anything, your BS radar ought to kick into overdrive because most of the time that indicates there's something fishy going on. There was a saying in the French Revolution, I think from Maximilian Robespierre himself, regarding why the revolutionaries felt that the king had to be tried and executed, why they felt that it was not sufficient simply to remove him from the throne and exile him from France. And the statement was, for the revolution to live, the king must die. For the revolution to live, the king must die. Well, I would say in order for you to live, in other words, in order for you to really be empowered and live up to your full potential, your heroes must die. And by heroes, again, in this sense, I mean, if there are any heroes that you do hero worship in, in the way I talked about before, that, that negative Kool-Aid drinking way, you got to stop. 
if you want to be great, you've got to stop hero worshiping. And I would refer you to the great AWOL Nation song, Kill Your Heroes, if you want to you know, have a good catchy tune that also expresses some of these same ideas. Maybe I'll put a link in the show notes to it on YouTube or something. Kill your heroes. For you to live to your potential, you've got to kill your heroes. And I don't mean that literally. I mean, you've got to stop hero worshiping. Next concept that I want to talk about is meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Different, different song this time, right? Won't get fooled again by the who famous song famous line, right? And that song's all about how revolutions don't really change much most of the time. And in some cases, things are no better and might even be worse than before the revolution. There's a lot of wisdom in Won't Get Fooled Again. It's very true. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, except actually a lot of the time, the new boss is worse than the old boss, at least in some respects. So for example... Within just a few years of the end of the American Revolutionary War, many Americans were actually paying higher taxes to their, quote-unquote, new government than they'd been asked to pay by the British in the 1760s and 70s. You know, the taxes that caused people to ultimately pick up muskets and shoot redcoats were actually quite small in monetary terms. People were revolting over the principle. But many Americans, especially kind of average Americans, were being taxed far more by the time George Washington was president, and especially important by the time Alexander Hamilton was running the Treasury Department. They're slapping more taxes on many average Americans than the parliament ever tried to do. So if you just go on tax rates, a lot of Americans are no better off, and in fact, many are worse off from getting their independence. This is, this is true. This is sad, but true. You know, when I talk about a lot of these things and I do myth busting of the American Revolution, understand I'm not doing it out of any any desire just to be controversial or, or stir up dirt or whatever. I'm not happy that the American Revolution in many ways didn't live up to its hype and its rhetoric and its myth. I'm not happy about that. But my priority is always to try to understand the truth as best I can and to try to share that with others as best I can. And I'm, I may not always be right about everything. Nobody is, but I'm at least making an honest, good faith effort. And if my quest for the truth and desire to share that with you reveals some things at times that, you know, are kind of a downer, I'm not going to whitewash it. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to clean it up and lie about it. I'm going to call it like I see it. So in a, probably a couple weeks or so, I'm going to do an episode about Shay's Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion. I think I'm going to do it as a combo episode, although maybe as I work on it, maybe I'll break it into two separate episodes, one for each of those rebellions. But it's going to show you how a lot of the problems of the re that the revolution was caused by are not fully resolved. And in some cases, things have gotten a bit worse in the years after the revolution. And when you look at these types of things, when you look at how often a revolution that overthrows a government that was terrible um, oftentimes results in a government being created in its place that's as bad, if not worse, this is why I'm not a proponent of revolution in the typical politically minded sense of rising up violently against the state to overthrow it and replace it, because that always gets you back into the same old cycle. That always gets you back into the won't get fooled again cycle. Even if you temporarily do roll back oppression, it's always just going to snap back sooner or later. Revolutions are kind of like the, 
I think it was originally a, a Hindu and Brahmanist idea that also later got somewhat uh, appropriated by the Buddhists. The idea of samsara, the idea of the wheel of recycling and reincarnation, right? Where you just keep getting recycled cosmically. Every time you die, you get reborn as something else. And um, that's kind of, to me, how what revolutions are. They're, think about what the word revolution means, right? It means a, a cycle. It means you go in a circle, right? So you're not really making net progress. And so what I would say is you want to get to that level of enlightenment that all those different Eastern religions that use some form of samsara in their mythology talk about, whether it's the state of Brahma or the state of Nirvana or whatever, where you transcend the wheel, right? You transcend from endless recycling. So that's why I'm a proponent of the deepest, most real revolution that I think there is, and that is the revolution inside of each individual's mind. To me, that's what matters, and I believe that that's how ultimately to stop this endless recycling of regimes and dynasties and so on that very often are no better than what came before it and some very often actually are worse. Individual mental revolutions. That's where I believe the path to true freedom lays. Some other miscellaneous observations and things from the American Revolution. One, and you could see this all over the place, not just in this war, but it deserves to be said, winning battles does not equate to winning wars. It should be an obvious point, but apparently it's not, including to many people in and around government to this day, that winning battles and winning wars are two separate things. And while sometimes winning battles does further one side winning a war, it oftentimes doesn't. The American Revolution is a wonderful example of this. The British won more battles, and in particular won more of the really large battles than the Americans did, and yet at the end of the day, the British lost the war. Vietnam War, another very obvious example of this as well. And the more you get into modern fourth-generation insurgency war, the more true this becomes, that winning battles and winning wars are two totally separate issues. And I think there's lessons from that insight that apply to all sorts of things, not just to war itself. So I, I hope that gives you something to think about and uh, ways you can see that and apply that in other areas of life. Next thing I'd like to say is never underestimate the willingness and ability of oligarchs to try to co-opt for their own purposes grassroots or populist outrage that is genuinely grassroots and bottom up. This happens again and again and again throughout history. The common people, the non-elite, the non-oligarch types have, you know, some kind of cause. They're angry about something. They're pushing for like real substantive change. And next thing you know, at least some elements of their oligarchy swoop in and adopt their cause or at least pretend to and end up absorbing and diverting a lot of the genuine bottom-up outrage and these oligarchs who come in and join forces with angry populists oftentimes end up successfully using all that energy for their own purposes. And by the end, one way or another, the true angry populists have been diffused. 
So I, I think you see that very clearly in the American Revolution in the case of many of the so-called founding fathers. Many of them were very conservative oligarchs, didn't want much change. Some of them were even reluctantly dragged into independence to begin with, and yet they succeeded in co-opting a lot of this lower and middle class anger. And by doing so, they prevented the revolution from maybe instituting as much change as it otherwise might have. So the oligarchs, they swoop in and co-op. They swoop in and co-op. That's what they do. At least the smarter and more skillful among them. More recently, a place where I, I observed this somewhat uh, firsthand in real time was in regards to the so-called Tea Party movement. For all of its flaws, and there are tons of them, I, I would say that at the very beginning of the Tea Party movement, it was truly a grassroots, bottom-up, anti-establishment thing. It was, it was populist, and the Tea Partiers had almost as much, and in some cases even more, anger towards the Republican Party than towards the Democratic Party. I went to a few early Tea Party rallies in my area, and that's what I saw. I saw genuinely grassroots people angry at the establishment, angry at both parties, feeling unrepresented, right? Within, I don't know, I would say maybe six months to a year at most, the Republican Party hierarchy, the very individuals that in many cases the early Tea Partiers were angry at, successfully swooped in, co-opted and adopted the Tea Party and started acting like they were part of it and that they were leading it. And they got away with it. They were successful. You know, the major media got behind them on this. Next thing you know, everybody's saying, hey, the Tea Party's basically um, a, a tool of the Republican Party. And they were right. And they were right. And so this genuinely populist, genuinely grassroots movement very quickly became just another group of foot soldiers for one wing of the political establishment. And I think in some ways, a version of that happened uh, with Occupy Wall Street as well. So in the case of the so-called founding fathers, these tended to be very wealthy elite oligarchs. Many of them had contempt for the average person. To be fair, some of them didn't. But it's amazing how many of them, when you look into their, their personal papers and correspondence, you find expressions of contempt for the average person that you know, the same average person that they express contempt for is then successfully suckered and propagandized into worshiping them. So to just give you an example of uh, the papers of George Washington, especially from during the war era, have lots of negative, uh, you know, contemptuous statements about average Americans. Now, this is even more true of Alexander Hamilton, but of course he would su suspect it more, right? He has much more of just a blatant reputation as an elitist. But um, George Washington wrote of the common average Americans who staffed the militias in the lower ranks of his army that they were, quote, an exceedingly dirty and nasty people, end quote, and that he saw in his own words describing them, quote, an unaccountable kind of stupidity in the lower class of these people, end quote. This is how he saw average Americans who were not elite oligarchs like him. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying when I when I talk about oligarchs and I badmouth the elite, I'm not saying that there's anything morally wrong with a wealthy person simply for being wealthy. I use the term oligarch very deliberately instead of just wealthy, because an oligarch is somebody who's wealthy, but whose wealth comes at least in large measure from the state. And this is a person who uses the state to enhance their wealth and to prevent more regular people from ever challenging their power or their authority. 
that's what I mean by oligarch. It's not just a wealthy person. It's how did they get their wealth? And then also what do they do with it? And if they got their wealth by using state power and they use their wealth to continue to control state power or influence state power, that's an oligarch. Another miscellaneous observation on the American Revolution, and this one should be pretty obvious, but it's amazing how many people still don't grasp it. Well-armed populations are much harder to oppress. Even Howard Zinn, who's a big-time leftist, concedes this. In A People's History of the United States, he writes, quote, The American victory over the British army was made possible by the existence of an already armed people. Just about every white male had a gun, and could shoot. The revolutionary leadership distrusted the mobs of poor, but they knew the revolution had no appeal to slaves and Indians. They would have to woo the armed white population, end quote. In other words, the groups who were much less well-armed, such as blacks and Indians, could be more easily dealt with however the elite wanted to. But by contrast, the armed white people, even if they were fairly poor, had to be at least somewhat brought into the process, brought into the fold, so to speak, albeit, you know, almost always on very limited terms on the elite's own terms. But nonetheless, there's this link between the powers that be respecting certain peoples and those certain peoples not coincidentally being armed. Historically, the mark of a free man was the right to bear arms, the right to have a sword or later um, a firearm on your hip. It's in the nature of government that they will do whatever they can get away with. And they can obviously get away with a lot more against an unarmed population. This is why, for example, the British had a much easier time in the 18th century oppressing the Irish, for example, than oppressing the American colonists. Another observation on the revolution is that decentralization is a strength, not a weakness. I actually intended to talk about this when I was talking about my reasons why the Americans won in the last episode, but I neglected to, so I'll do it here. Uh, Besides, it fits in here just fine anyway. Interestingly, um, many of those who served as upper and middle level officers in the Continental Army, regardless of their previous political beliefs, came out of the war favoring a very centralized political system and became, like I said before, a federalist. For example, Nathaniel Green, Daniel Morgan, Henry Knox, of course, George Washington himself, uh, Alexander Hamilton. These guys, some of them were kind of centralist types before their service in the Continental Army um, and then became more extreme because of that experience. Others maybe weren't initially that way, but by the end of the war had become big time proponents of a centralized government. And this was because of their experience in the regular Continental Army, this attempt to create a top-down, hierarchical, large-standing army. From their perspective, they saw the decentralized nature of the Articles of Confederation system as a weakness, because they believed that the war could have gone better had there been a much more centralized government that was better able to provide for the Continental Army. Now, these guys might have a point purely from the perspective of what would have been good for the Continental Army itself as an institution. But I, for one, am not so sure that a much more centralized system would have been good for the overall cause of independence because it was the very decentralized nature of the government. The the Articles of Confederation Congress, the Continental Congress, was 
such a decentralized governing body that it almost wasn't a government at all in many ways. And this made it so hard for the British to win. Even at times when the British were absolutely dominating the battlefield and were seizing cities at will, they still couldn't stop the independence movement. They still couldn't stop the rebellion. Remember, they even took the city of Philadelphia, which was the closest thing to a capital city there was at the time, and it meant jack shit to the overall cause of independence. Whereas imagine if the American government at the time had been organized in a much more centralized European-style fashion, it might have meant losing the war. And the Continental Army, simply through luck and a a couple of um, quick, clever retreats that I'll give begrudging credit to Washington to on a few occasions of pulling out his army at the last minute before it got annihilated or captured in mass, the Continental Army, as as a major central target, made things much more vulnerable And it was just a matter of of luck and and a few clever, hasty retreats that the Continental Army never got totally wiped out or captured. Contrast that to the militia. And I did talk about this a bit in last episode. The militia, while they weren't as good most of the time as the Continental Army in a typical stand-up, you know, pitched battle, the militia were so dispersed and diffused that the British couldn't do much about it, right? So when you're fighting an extremely decentralized organization, I don't even know how you deal with that successfully. There are very few examples of it even being done. Look at the British perspective. What could they do? They could win this battle, win that battle, and then the the next county over still is, you know, controlled by revolutionaries. They could uh, defeat this militia unit and that militia unit, but then there's a couple dozen more over the next hill that still haven't been defeated. They could even seize the city of Philadelphia, and it didn't matter. Whereas, imagine at at the time, if, uh, if an invading army seized London, right? That would probably cause the British government to um, stop whatever war it was fighting, right? And same thing with Paris. We know, for example, in France, a, a very centralized country, most of the time, historically, if you seize the city of Paris, you've just defeated France. But the Americans, much more decentralized at the time, you could seize their capital and it didn't really matter. And on this topic, I want to make a book recommendation The book to read for a lot more insight into how decentralized and leaderless organizations are so powerful and so difficult to try and oppose. The book to read is called The Starfish and the Spider, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations by Ori Brothman and Rod A. Beckstrom. And it's definitely a book that I will be putting one of my Amazon links to in the show notes for this episode fascinating book looks at leaderless decentralized organizations in a variety of contexts not just in political and military terms but you know they even look at things like um wikipedia and uh burning man i think is even in there alcoholics anonymous a variety of different versions of leaderless decentralized organizations and they point out how these are just very difficult to stop if they are animated by some sort of a purpose that keeps them going, right? In, in, this, in this book, they talk about catalysts. They talk about how a leaderless organization might still have a figure or figures that they kind of look to for inspiration or what have you, but that's not the same thing as a leader in the sense of a person who's actually running an organization and micromanaging it. So if you look at the American Revolution as a whole, you know, George Washington was the leader of the Continental Army at the time, but he wasn't the leader of the revolution. He didn't directly control all of the local, 
you know, committees of safety and, and various little local political boards. He didn't control the local militia units and so on. And so as a whole, the political and military aspects of the American Revolution were, to, to a large degree anyway, kind of leaderless. Now, there were a variety of catalysts. There were a variety of figures that helped inspire and um, keep going the revolution, right? People like George Washington in his own way. Um, you could definitely put, put there as well the great speakers and writers of the revolutionary movement who acted as catalysts as well as these, you know, charismatic or inspiring people. Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Patrick Henry, these sorts of people. But these were not leaders in the sense of micromanaging the revolution as, as a hierarchical organization. Instead, it, it was a very diffused system. Decision-making was often done on surprisingly local levels. And as a result, again, this actually ended up being a strength. It meant the British army were almost like, it's, almost like you're fighting against a ghost. You're fighting against a ghost that when you try and hit it, your fists pass right through it. But on occasion, when the ghost wants to, it can clock you one and you feel it. And what's interesting is a lot of Americans who actually participated in this whole thing didn't really understand this, didn't really understand that it was their very uh, somewhat disorganized, chaotic way that it actually made them less vulnerable to British attack than if they were better organized, more centralized and so on. And uh, in, in that book, I recommended The Starfish and the Spider. Of course, the title comes from the fact that when you look at a spider, and, and that in their metaphor is a centralized organization, you look at a spider, if you cut off one of its legs, that leg never grows back. And if you cut off the head of a spider, the spider's dead. But if you look at a starfish, right? A starfish, if you lop off one of its legs, not only does that leg that you lopped off actually grow back, but the, the severed limb then will grow into an entire new starfish as well. And of course, starfish don't really have like a head, a central nervous system that you can just snip and then that's it. The whole thing shuts down. There's a very different kind of organism. And so truly decentralized leaderless organizations are much more like starfish. They're much more resilient, whereas centralized top-down hierarchical organizations are much more like spiders. They look more formidable, but they're actually easier to neutralize. And I would say the American Revolution was certainly not pure starfish, but it was just by default, not by design, not on purpose. It was more starfish than spider. And this was a big reason why the British had such a difficult time ever coming up with a grand strategy that actually had a chance of snuffing out the revolution. It's like if the only tool you had was a knife and you're trying to figure out how to wipe out a bunch of starfish. So anyway, check that book out. I highly recommend it. I think there's a lot of wisdom and insight there that applies to many different aspects of life. Starfish and the spider. And the last thing I want to do for the rest of this episode is address this question of was the American Revolution really a revolution? Is that, is that language correct? Or was it simply an independence war or a secession war, right? And then related to that, kind of like an overall evaluation of was the American Revolution on the whole a positive thing for history uh, of the world and, and of America as well. So was the American Revolution really a revolution? I find this a very interesting question and one with no clear-cut final answer. 
I hope you find this an interesting question as well, because I'm going to talk about it quite a bit, and I hope that you'll find my discussion of it worthwhile. Uh, please indulge me, but I think it's one of those very important and interesting questions, and again, one which, one to which there is no obvious, clear-cut, be-all, end-all, final answer. Now, I'd intended to address this very important and difficult question at the end of this series from the very moment that I conceived of this series in the first place, I was like, yeah, it, in the end, I'll have to talk about the whole question of was it really revolution? And by the way, I do talk about this a bit um, often in history classes that I teach, this question of was the American Revolution really a revolution? And I have to say my own thoughts on the matter have, have kind of bounced back and forth towards more yes or more no at various points in, in my life and in my career. And I've never been 100% yes or 100% no to that question. So this is why I feel that I can kind of understand and see the points on both sides. But before I proceed more, I want to give a shout to a listener who brought this question up quite early. And uh, the listener who brought this issue up, even before I really started getting into it in this miniseries, is a longtime listener. He goes by Halsingen on his comments. He's from Sweden. And he's been a listener from fairly early on to the show, and I, I very much appreciate him because he has done a lot to help spread the word of the Dangerous History podcast in various venues, and, and I'm very grateful to him for that. And uh, he's also a guy who always, when he posts, he posts very thought-provoking um, and intelligent questions and comments on profcj.org. And though I rarely disagree with him, he's the type of guy who it's a real pleasure to disagree with him on occasion because you can have intelligent and polite discussions with him rather than the type of exchange that, let's face it, internet disagreements usually degenerate into very quickly, right? This is, um, I, I don't like to be in those types of discussions where it's just sort of trollery and name calling and, and smearing and so on. And, um, th this is Halsingen's the type of guy that uh, you can disagree with him without being disagreeable and he will return, uh, the favor. So he brought up this question of whether or not the American revolution was really a revolution in the comments section to episode 59, which was the second one in this series. It was the one all about the year 1775. So um, I would refer you to there. I'll try to remember to put a link in this show's notes to that episode. But if I forget, it's not a huge deal to just, you know, scroll down or whatever to episode 59. So you can look there at the comment section and see uh, what he wrote and how I responded. And, and, and I think it's a, a thought provoking exchange even though we, we do have some slight disagreements on this uh, interesting question. So check that out if you haven't already seen that. Um, I'll try not to repeat too much of that exchange here, though of course there will be some parallels and connections and probably some reiteration of some of those points. But um, if I understand it correctly, and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if I understand it correctly, his argument is that or, or was anyway, that it wasn't really a revolution in the fullest sense of the word because it didn't result in the overthrow and replacement of the British government in London. And of course, you know, that didn't even come close to happening as far as we know. Nobody involved in the American Revolution or Independence War, as you may want to call it, even fantasized about going over to London and overthrowing the British government. That was that was not even really realistically an option. So I understand the argument that because the British state as such was not completely overthrown or replaced, it's not a revolution. 
And also, one could argue, and I think he, uh, Halsigan, in some of the articles that he linked to in his comments, which, you know, you can go look at those for yourself. Also, the argument is that it wasn't a revolution in kind of the big sociological and socioeconomic way, um, and that the changes in society were much less dramatic than what you find in other revolutions, you know, the types of revolutions that nobody ever really disagrees on whether they were revolutions or not, such as the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. So instead, according to this argument, and a lot of other people that, that I respect very much have made arguments like this as well, so I'm not rejecting it out of hand, but um, this argument would be that the so-called American Revolution, you know, commonly called the American Revolution, should more correctly be seen as something um, perhaps better described as a secession war or an independence war, and that those are better terms to describe this than is the word revolution. Now, I very much see the point of this argument. I very much understand it. But I'd like to elaborate a bit more on this question and kind of muddy the waters a bit, because while I I certainly think there's some merit to that argument, I also think it's a little more complex than that. And again, I really do think that it's it's a very complicated question and there's not a clear cut answer the way, you know, if someone says what's two plus two, like you can answer that definitively uh, and prove it and so on. And like there's no debate with anyone who is, you know, not insane, what two plus two is. But a question like this is much more open-ended. And uh, these are the types of questions that I often think are the most intriguing historical questions to explore for those of you who are intellectually curious. And I'm hoping, if you're listening to this show, that you are intellectually curious, because if you're not, I don't know how long you'll be able to listen to this show without you know, getting sick or, or offended or bored or what have you. So was the American revolution really a revolution? My, my thoughts on this and also some reference to some other people that I think provide some uh, interesting insight and to some degree who have uh, influenced my own thinking on the topic though, you know, I, I very much find myself in line with Murray Rothbard's analysis and conceived in Liberty in Liberty. But I must, I must uh, point out though, that while he expresses it, you know, far more eloquently, he's a much better writer than I could ever be. Um, nonetheless, my thoughts on the American Revolution that I find echoed and conceived in Liberty, I actually was developing these own thoughts in my head from just readings on various history books of the American Revolution and my own thoughts about it, even years before I ever read Murray Rothbard's uh, conceived in Liberty series and got his take. And so it was funny. Um, I, I probably was already developing this basic concept of the American revolution in my head. I think before I even knew who Murray Rothbard even was. So kind of interesting to find conclusions and, and thoughts that I had been developing independently on my own to then find out that this, uh, this, this great intellectual that I later discover also had similar thoughts on the same subject. So kind of heartening. Now I'm, I'm not trying to make this an argument from authority like Murray Rothbard says this. So, you know, you have to believe it because I, I certainly, you know, have some disagreements with him about various things that he, he wrote on and so on. But was the American revolution really a revolution? All right. Well, first off, I'll, I'll start with, with definitions and 
in my uh, exchange in the comment section for episode 59, I, I mentioned dictionary.com. Here I'll also mention Merriam-Webster's online, which is similar, but a little bit different. And I don't bring this up as the be-all, end-all definition of the word revolution, but rather as a jumping-off point or a starting point. So, Merriam-Webster's online has this as the top three basic definitions of the word revolution. First, the usually violent attempt by many people to end the rule of one government and start a new one. Second, a sudden, extreme, or complete change in the way people live, work, etc. And third, the action of moving around something in a path that is similar to a circle. Now, obviously, it's the first definition that is the most relevant here, the one that's most explicitly related to politics and government. Although I will just say a little bit about the other two definitions sort of in passing. Now, the second one obviously applies more to things that are not not entirely or primarily political, such as the various agricultural revolutions or the industrial revolution or the internet revolution, those sorts of things. And the third one is interesting because it refers to like physically a revolution, right? Physical activity. Very interesting because, of course, if a revolution means to go in a circle, then that means you end up where you started and that has all kinds of meet the new boss, same as the old boss implications. But anyway, um, to get into this question a little further, we've got to talk a little bit about historiography. And my basic off-the-cuff shorthand definition of the term historiography is it's looking at and studying and thinking about the ways that various historians have analyzed and interpreted history and how that has changed over the years. So, you know, how people at various points in time have written about and understood and portrayed big, important historical uh, questions such as the American Revolution. So the historiography of the American Revolution in the 19th century was mostly very different from modern academic history. It was self-consciously aimed more at the goals of storytelling and of inventing and preserving myths in order to foster patriotism. It was basically a, an American version of what's known as Whig history, and in this case, Whig spelled W-H-I-G. Whig history is a term that originally goes back to 17th century England, uh, late 17th and early 18th century England. And it was those who wrote about English history in that era as this like wonderful progression of ever increasing liberty and so on. So they would write about, you know, each revolution or, or reform or change in English society as being just another stepping stone on the unbroken path upward towards ever more freedom and enlightenment and so on. And from that origin, the term Whig history has come to mean anyone who writes about history in such a way that it is an unbroken chain of positive progress. So that's very much how some of the earliest American historians wrote about the revolution. It was that way. It was just like this, you know, completely perfect, heroic, wonderful thing. And in this Whig history version of the revolution, the revolution actually, in a way, was portrayed as very radical, as very much a break from the past and in a huge outbreak and almost orgy of, of freedom. And you can look up writings by people like George Bancroft to get an idea of, of what this was like. 
it's it's almost cartoonishly comic bookish in its portrayal of you know pure good versus pure evil so the revolution in, in this portrayal was very radical but also totally benevolent totally benevolent nothing but a force for good and progress with no exceptions or complications to be found now around the turn of the 20th century Whig history in general came under fire as academic history as we know it today really started to come into its own. So I would say that Whig history came under fire in general for good reason, although there are still some redeeming qualities, one of which is it typically is uh, better written history with with better story uh, storytelling qualities than dry academic history. Um, The downside is that Whig history often is very um, deficient on on facts and evidence. So where did this answer that people give in various forms when they argue that the American Revolution was not really much of a revolution at all, um, where does this come from? Well, some of it comes from early 20th century progressive historians, such as Charles Beard, for example, who, in revising the Whig history narrative, um, and in particular in doing so about the American Revolution and the early republic and the Constitution and so on, they started to portray the American Revolution as more and more like a coup by a self-interested American elite, and therefore as not really revolutionary. And again, I think they got some part of the truth that had been missed by Whig historians. But that, as is so often the case when revisionist history takes place, even when it's based on good evidence and good arguments, it can oftentimes overcompensate for the previous uh, deficiencies of the narrative in such a way that it also can miss important things or oversimplify the story in a different direction. And really, for most time, most of the time since the progressive era, this, you could almost say very cynical view of the American Revolution, has typically been a radical minority viewpoint, both in, in and outside of academia. Far more prevalent has been a view that is a bit different a view that originally came from a combination of Cold War liberal interventionist and early neoconservative writers in the first couple decades of the Cold War, especially the 50s and early 60s. And these historians, some of them were credentialed professional historians, others were from other um, intellectual arenas, you know, in academia, some of them were political scientists, um, writers of various types and so on. They portrayed the American Revolution. Uh, they didn't. They didn't portray it as a an elite, self interested coup d'état the way the progressive historians did. But they did reject the view that it was truly revolutionary or radical in any way. And they really very much focused on whether they were doing this consciously and purposefully or not, portraying the American Revolution as being very moderate and very much about consensus and really not at all revolutionary in most regards. And as always, when you're looking at historiography, you you link it to what's actually going on in the present of the historians that are writing the historiography in question, right? So... This portrayal of the American Revolution makes sense when you consider what these historians who were putting forth this consensus, this moderation narrative, they were in the early Cold War, right? And in the Cold War era, especially pre-Vietnam, the American elite were explicitly anti-revolutionary 
because they sometimes correctly and sometimes incorrectly associated revolutionary movements, especially in the so-called third world with communism and with opposition to the interests of American corporate interests and the corporate interests of America's close allies. And for more discussion on this um, view of the American revolution, I would refer you to volume four of Murray Rothbard's conceived in Liberty, especially chapter 80 in which he discusses this question with, you know, the usual Rothbard um, eloquence and so on. He sums up this anti-revolutionary characterization, which, by the way, he very much disagrees with, as follows. Quote, especially since the early 1950s, America has been concerned with opposing revolutions throughout the world. In the process, it has generated a historiography that denies its own revolutionary past. This neoconservative view of the American Revolution tries to isolate the American Revolution from all the revolutions in the Western world that preceded it and followed it. The American Revolution, this view holds, was unique. It alone, of all modern revolutions, was not really revolutionary. Instead, it was moderate, conservative, dedicated only to preserving existing institutions from British aggrandizement. Furthermore, like all else in America, it was marvelously harmonious and consensual. Unlike the wicked French and other revolutions in Europe, the American Revolution then did not upset or change anything. It was therefore not really a revolution at all. Certainly, it was not radical. End quote. Now, to be clear, I'll point out that I don't think that Halsingen and those whom he cites came to this sort of conclusion for the same reasons as these Cold War neocon and, and liberal interventionist historians of the mid-20th century. I, I know for sure that, you know, those sources that he linked to in that comment section are not um, at all, at all, uh, Cold War interventionist or anything like that. Um, I think the motivation of groups like the Mises Institute or the Abbeville Institute, they're more... Um, interested in the notion of making secession appear to be less scary to people of a concept than it usually is. But in the process, though, they're obviously operating from from very different, um, you know, starting points and they and they definitely believe very different things. Nonetheless, they're they're coming to somewhat similar conclusions as far as the conclusion that the revolution wasn't really revolutionary, the American Revolution wasn't really revolutionary. But I think it's important to note that there are two dimensions of this historical event that we often refer to as the American Revolution uh, for short. To paraphrase the early 20th century historian Carl Becker, who wrote a lot of interesting stuff about this question, it was not only about home rule, but it was also about who would rule at home. Carl Becker was, as far as I know, one of the first American historians to really spell out these two separate dimensions of the whole epoch, right? The question of home rule, right? Will the colonies govern themselves? And then also the question of who would rule at home? Okay, if the colonies are no longer governed by the British Empire, um, who gets to then call the shots for those territories and, and how's that work, right? So looking at these two separate issues or these two separate dimensions. On the one hand, you have clearly a successful independence war that 
severed the empire's ties politically to the 13 North American colonies. On the other hand, you have on the question of who should rule at home, you, you have a revolution, but one that I am the first to admit was very much incomplete against things like state-supported oligarchy and privilege. In other words, again, to use the Lord of the Rings reference and metaphor, there was total success in cutting the ring off of Sauron's finger, but then there was not success in throwing the ring immediately into the volcano. Instead, the American leaders who had cut the ring off Sauron's finger then decided they would wear the ring themselves and, of course, telling themselves and everybody else all the while that they will do so only for good purposes. And again, I'll refer you to my comments in the comments section for episode 59, where, you know, I I made the argument that when you look at other independence or secession conflicts, you can see this dimension happening uh, to various degrees. So the ones I mentioned um, to compare and contrast with the American Revolution in my comments there, uh, one of them was the American not-so-civil war, as I like to refer to it. And there, I think, there is um, very, very little revolution in the question of who should rule at home, right? It was an attempt to have home rule for the South, for the Southern states, to have them no longer a part of the larger political union of you know the United States of America. But when you look at the Confederate government itself how it was organized and who ran it. It was overwhelmingly with, with very few significant changes similar to the old American constitution. There were just a couple of specific changes in their constitution that were of any significant, you know, substance. And when you look at the individuals who ran the Confederate government during that attempt at secession, they were overwhelmingly, guys who had already been wealthy and powerful and successful in the U.S. system, you know, before the secession. Most of the Confederate cabinet were people who had already been in high positions in the U.S. government in the years before the Civil War. And um, same thing, if you look at the Confederate Congress, it's full of people who were congressmen in the U.S. Congress before secession. And even within the Confederate military, yes, there were a handful of kind of new guys who rose through the ranks during the war. But overwhelmingly, the higher levels of the Confederate military were guys who had previously been mid to upper level officers in the United States military. And certainly they were attempting to preserve their uh, traditional way of life in regards to slavery and the plantations and so on. So I would say the not so civil war is, is an example of a secession war where there's almost no revolution going on within it in terms of the question of who should rule at home. And then in my comments, I contrasted this with the Anglo-Irish War of 1919 to 1921, right, in which the Irish, for the umpteenth time, rebelled for their independence and finally um, had at least a large measure of success, although it wasn't total at the time. But um, There you have some success on home rule, but you also have a lot of change as far as who will rule at home. There's an entire completely new governing elite, right? Somebody like uh, Eamon de Valera, for example, was not anybody of significance in the um, pre-war Anglo-Irish government, right? 
And the same could be said of, of many of the people who end up as high-level Irish government people after the um, independence from Britain. Now, I know it's not, it's not right away full independence anyway. It's, it's a so-called free state. And then over time, it, it breaks away and becomes an independent republic. But, you know, just simplifying for the sake of brevity here, right? So I would say that the, uh, the Irish war against the British is more revolutionary than definitely than the Civil War. And I think there's a strong case to be made uh, more so than the American War of Independence as well. So long story short, what I would say is the American War of Independence is somewhere in between those two poles. It has it results in um, a lot more internal change and revolution than um, the the Civil War did or, or would have had the South won its independence, whereas it's uh, perhaps not as much internal change on the question of who will rule at home compared to something like the Irish War of Independence. But it's also important to keep it in its context and understand that by the standards of the 18th century, the American Revolution was pretty frickin' revolutionary. You know, maybe we make a mistake when we judge it with the goggles of the early 21st century and we're judging it, uh, holding it up next to yardsticks of things that came after it. But if we look at it at the, the, with the eyes of somebody from the 18th century, you know, look at what did the people, not just Americans, but European observers at the time, did they think this was radical? Did they think this was revolutionary? And in fact, if you look at it that way, I think the question is, yeah, a lot of people, including a lot of um, powerful people in Europe who didn't like it, saw the American Revolution as very radical and revolutionary. So my basic argument is the American Revolution was, first off, let's acknowledge, it was not a unified monolithic group of people or events. And that when you zoom in and look at it and, and stop looking at, you know, giant amorphous blobs like the founding fathers and start to actually look at individuals and, and factions and so on, you find that there were some genuinely revolutionary elements, both in beliefs and in practice and, and also, you know, in, in people, but that the, these revolutionary elements were very much incomplete, both in terms of, you know, belief, philosophical consistency, and also in terms of how they were applied in practice during and after the War of Independence. And I would also acknowledge there was a counter-revolutionary faction within the pro-independence movement that began making progress uh, for their cause during the war itself. This, this I've mentioned several times in, in episodes prior to this, and that these counter-revolutionary forces achieved some success in rolling back some of the radicalism of the revolution during the war itself, and they achieved significant victories in the post-war era, especially with the writing and passage of the Constitution. And uh, even more so beyond that, with the accession to the presidency of George Washington, of course, whose vice president was John Adams and Treasury Secretary was Alexander Hamilton. All of these clearly guys who were pro-independence, but not very revolutionary, if at all. In fact, Hamilton in particular was explicitly an, a champion of the British mercantilist imperialist system. He only wanted to ensure that it was run by American oligarchs in New York, such as himself, rather than by British oligarchs across the sea in London. But he had no objection to the British imperial mercantilist system as such. 
just to where it was being run from and who was ultimately doing the collecting of the taxes. So, you know, there were clearly those who favored independence, but wanted little to no change in society and government and how things were basically run beyond that. George Washington being an obvious example, Adams Hamilton. Again, like I like I've said before, I'm skeptical that George Washington would have ever been a proponent of independence were it not for the fact that he felt like he had been snubbed and screwed by the British imperial authorities during and after the Revolutionary War, um, namely in regard to his uh, failure to obtain a commission in the British regular army, which I've mentioned before, and also something I can't remember if I've brought up before or not, the British government's proclamation of 1763, right? Which, remember, um, drew a line along the crest of the Appalachians and forbid colonists from going west of that and so on. Um, th this angered a lot of big-time real estate speculators like George Washington. So... You know, when you look at the fact that the British army wouldn't give him a commission and the fact that the British government after the Seven Years War were um, in a way roadblocking a lot of Washington's real estate ambitions, then I think you're left wondering, you know, how much of George Washington's uh, siding with the pro-independence faction was because of real principle and how much of it was just because the British government had kind of, you know, from his perspective specifically wronged him or discriminated against him or treated him unfairly right imagine had the british government given him a commission in the british army and not been in the way of some of his real estate plans um is is it realistic to expect that he would have become a revolutionary leader and so naturally a character like this is not in favor of radical change other than the secession itself so you've got that faction on the one hand, you might call them conservatives, you might call them, you know, anti-revolutionary, but pro-independence, I don't know, maybe you can come up with something less clunky than that. And then compared to them, you have real revolutionaries, probably the two most famous examples simply because they wrote such in influential things would be Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson. But of course, there were many others uh, of this faction who were less famous, some of whom, by the way, were more radical than Paine and Jefferson. And I, I would um, point you to the work of people like Gordon Wood and Bernard Balin, both of whom have written books about the intellectual aspect of the American Revolution, and in particular looking at some of the radicalism of it uh, for more detail on the ideas and, and the individuals of this more radical intellectual faction of the revolution. Um, those are some of the books I'll put in the show notes for this episode. And these sorts of more radical genuinely revolutionary people in their sentiments and beliefs, they tended to be much more intellectually plugged into the Enlightenment. And they tend to be much more libertarian and democratic in their ideas than the George Washingtons and the John Adamses of the uh, War of Independence. Now, while many today who are of kind of a libertarian mindset see democracy as a threat to libertarian type ideals, um, and, and rightly so, because for the past century or so, most of the time, um, more democracy has moved things in a more socialist direction. But it's important to understand that that was not how most intellectuals saw things in the 18th century. As Murray Rothbard and many others have pointed out, in the late 18th century, those who were of the more um, libertarian-ish inclinations tended also to be those with the most democratic inclinations. In other words, back then, democracy was seen, whether rightly or wrongly, it was seen as the best means by which to push 
for individual rights and against excessive or arbitrary state power. In fact, democratic institutions in the early modern Western world largely emerged as ways to check the government very explicitly rather than as the primary means by which to govern. Here's Murray Rothbard in Conceived in Liberty on this question, quote, Originally, democracy was not so much a means of government rule as it was a means for the popular checking of government. Parliament did not begin as a way to rule. It began as a means of telling the king that if he did not redress grievances and lower his exactions and demands, the representatives of the public would not consent to paying taxes to the crown. Democracy, in short, originated as a libertarian weapon against the state rather than as itself a form of state. Later, it became a form of government, but the former function still prevailed in 18th century England, for even though Parliament shared part of the governmental rule, it also tried at times to check its old nemesis, the crown, end quote. Again, quote from Rothbard. Historically, for the late 18th and for earlier centuries, democracy and liberty were conjoined. Democracy was precisely the major instrument by which the libertarian revolution exerted pressure upon the tyranny of the ruling castes. The threat, or rather the reality, of continuing invasion of liberty came from the state apparatus and its privileged ruling castes. The popular democratic upsurge against this prevailing old order was the concrete form necessarily taken by the libertarian idea. The preeminent libertarian task was to end the dictation to and exploitation of the people by the rulers of the state apparatus. In England, as everywhere, the state began in, in conquest, and a democratic upsurge was the clearly indicated path by which the people could pursue libertarian goals. End quote. So unlike in more modern times where representative democracy is the primary form of government in, in most uh, parts of the world today one, of one form or another. Back then, the norm was for uh, some combination of hereditary aristocracy and uh, the monarchy itself to really be the main uh, impetus within the government. And it was the more popular parts of the government, the popular assemblies of various types um, called different things in different countries that were typically the check the only check in, in many cases, potentially, upon the power of the rest of, of the state. So while today we might look at democracy because of its track record as ultimately uh, not a good way to protect and, and defend liberty, and I would agree with that, and I think there's some great work analyzing exactly why the incentives of democracy are often antithetical to individual liberty, but you know, looking at it in the context of the 18th century, that was still how even really intelligent intellectuals saw it, was that democracy was the best way to um, foster and defend freedom. So those are your, your more kind of Jeffersonian, Paynean uh, individuals, right? The, the ones who were the most in favor of individual liberty at the time were also the most in favor of increasing democratization. Now, where you can see a wonderful illustration of this split between the more radical and the more conservative elements within the American independence movement is to look up the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, which was very radical, um, very democratic, and in many ways very libertarian, and compare that to the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which was very um, elitist. 
And I won't get into that in detail here. It's not not my you know goal in this episode to analyze those two constitutions, but I would just say, you know, you can look that up and, and you can see clearly expressed you know, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 is much more uh, blatantly an, an Enlightenment-influenced document, whereas the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, you can see much more the fingerprints of John Adams, who, as I've mentioned in a previous episode, was heavily involved in that Constitution. Now, um, something I want to point out that, that I find at least kind of interesting is that the military patterns of this split between radicals and conservatives uh, during the Revolutionary War set the stage for a lot of the future political patterns. So what I mean by that is, in general, the officers of the regular Continental Army, especially the higher level officers, tended to be, when you look at um, their participation in politics after the war, they tended to end up being the much more elitist and pro, you know, big and powerful central government types. Whereas those who had fought in the revolution but had participated in a more what you would think of as an irregular or guerrilla style fashion, they tended to be much more democratic and decentralist in post-war politics, much more in favor of small government and lower taxes and so on. So this is actually a microcosm of what ends up evolving into what's known as the first party system in American history in which you had the Hamiltonian Federalists opposed to the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans as they were known at the time. So my point is that the revolution um, is split in a variety of ways, and you can see this both during and after the revolution itself manifested in a lot of different ways. And the revolution didn't go away right away. In fact, um, in the near future, I'll be putting out an episode on Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, and I'm going to be calling that revolutionary aftershocks because I think that's exactly what they were. They were an attempt by at least some people who um, sided more with the radical ideas of the revolution to resist the increasing counter-revolution that took place in the years after independence. But um, William R. Polk, in the book I've quoted a few times in the series Violent Politics, in his chapter on the American Revolution, points out that some of the more radical politics um, in America in the decades after independence were linked to the radical insurgence of the war of independence one way or another polk writes quote the men who had made the little war and whom washington had sidelined continued the revolution in other forms indeed in a sense the political movement of andrew jackson half a century later was an echo of the earlier insurgency end quote and um, some other of these echoes such as um shay's rebellion and the whiskey rebellion uh, were snuffed out and were unsuccessful and I also would characterize, besides the, the Jacksonian movement, uh, the revolution of Thomas Jefferson and his party in the electoral process in 1800 as another echo of this more revolutionary element of the revolution. Though, of course, I'd be the first to point out that both the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians were um, failures in terms of living up to their stated principles once they were in office, something that is uh, tragically a constant, ongoing, still very much with us today, American tradition. But specifically, what were some of the ways in which the revolution arguably was revolutionary? Well, um, one, and I'm going to try and stick more to like you know, concrete things rather than just rhetoric and, and so on. But um, the established churches were done away with eventually everywhere in America. But in the immediate post-war era, 
they were done away with in most of the colonies that had had them prior to the revolution. So before 1776, all of the 13 colonies had an established church, except for the colonies of Rhode Island, which was explicitly um, founded by religious dissenters as a haven for religious nonconformists. And uh, also the colonies of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, all of which had um, significant Quaker involvement in their founding. And as a result, uh, also did not have established churches. Now, what we mean by established church here is a church, a particular denomination that is given some sort of privileged uh, position, some sort of preference by the government. It doesn't necessarily mean that other denominations um, are illegal, but it means that everybody pays taxes to the established church, whether or not they attend it. So even though in your colony um, it might be legal to attend another church, you still have to help pay for the uh, state preferred church, right? Now, obviously, you know, it doesn't take a genius to point out how this contradicts with all the uh, freedom ideas and individual um, rights and conscience ideas of the revolution, right? All the enlightenment ideas. So nine of the 13 colonies had established churches at the time the revolution really started. And um, in the South and in New York, it was the Anglican Church or Church of England, right? That got tax money and certain other privileges that other denominations did not enjoy. And then up in New England, with the exception of Rhode Island, of course, uh, in the rest of New England, it was the Congregational Church. But during and immediately after the revolution, established churches were disestablished almost everywhere where they had been. Um, The only exceptions were um, a couple of the New England states kept their established Congregationalist Church uh, for for a while afterward. But... um, When you look at things like the Virginia Bill for Religious Liberty, which Thomas Jefferson had a hand in writing and James Madison had a huge hand in passing, and look at the First Amendment of of the Bill of Rights, you know, the Constitution, its clauses on religion, which were directly inspired by the Virginia Bill for Religious Freedom, uh, you see a reflection of this. And this was a big change. You know, England itself continued to have an established church. But in the American colonies, it was done away with in places where it existed. So that's a that's a significant change. There's much more freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, free, freedom not just to choose what to believe or not believe or choose what church to attend or not attend, but also freedom to not have some of your money taken to support a church that you might not even agree with or attend. You can also make the case for some significant revolutionary stuff looking at the loyalists and what happened to them. While not all of the loyalists were wealthy oligarchs, a disproportionate number of them were, and a handful of them actually owned some of the largest tracts of land in the colonies before the revolution. Um, Some of the loyalists owned hundreds of thousands of acres. I think a few might have even owned uh, estates totaling in the millions, if I remember correctly. And of course, these loyalists often had also had a lot of political power and prestige within their colonies as well prior to the revolution. And of course, after the revolution, they had, uh, in most cases, fled. Their land had, uh, to put it euphemistically, changed hands. And certainly they no longer had any political power over the 13 colonies at all. So there was at least some significant change of personnel, right? So... 
There's not a full up ending of society by any means, but nonetheless, the fate of the loyalists shows that there was some degree of shaking up of society and who has um, all the wealth and power, right? Although I'm the first to admit that there's still, you know, a lot of the guys who ended up being the new American elite actually were also wealthy and powerful under the British system as well, right? So again, this is complicated. This is not clear cut. There were even many areas of America where genuine civil war and mass violence between Whig and Tory, between Patriot and Loyalist Americans raged. And remember, there were more Tories who fled America during this era than there were Frenchmen who fled France during the more radical phases of that revolution. And, and that's a revolution that's almost always portrayed as, with good reason, being more um, bloodthirsty and extreme. And yet more loyalists actually fled America. And there was a political revolution in many areas during this time period, especially when you look at the local level, in the sense that much of the real day-to-day governing was actually carried out not by the Continental Congress and not even a lot of the times by the state government, but in fact by really local governments by somewhat spontaneous and chaotic local committees that were sort of ad hoc. These were most often called committees of safety or something along that line. Now, committees of safety is a term much more commonly associated with the French Revolution, something like that. And um, Rothbard points this out and says, look, here's a case where there's a lot of similarity to revolutions that are usually seen as more radical. And um, I think Rothbard, if I remember right, even argues that these local committees of safety are possibly the most politically revolutionary aspect of the entire American Revolution. And while it's certainly true that the average middle or lower class American didn't have much of a say in the Continental Congress, it's also true that in many areas, that type of person might have been able to have a say in their local committee of safety or whatever their local you know, revolutionary institution was called. And keeping in mind that at that time, a lot of the real day-to-day governing decisions were made at the very local level, that maybe is kind of important. Now, there also were some changes in regard to aristocracy and feudalism in in that um, elements of genuine de jure uh, aristocracy, aristocracy like written into law, not, not just custom or natural elitism, but, you know, aristocracy in law in America were significant uh, were significantly reduced, not eliminated, of course, but significantly reduced. And of course, I fully acknowledge that de facto aristocracy continued and in fact still exists today. (coughs) Bushes, Clintons, excuse me, (coughs) Rockefellers. All right, sorry. But um, nonetheless, it is true that some of the more blatant aspects of English feudalism and and, uh, aristocracy, such as things like legally mandated primogenitor and entail did end as a result of the revolution in the colonies in which those institutions had previously existed, which would have been uh, the South and New York primarily. Now, if you don't know, primogenitor is the practice of having an estate go intact to only the eldest male and not being divvied up. And uh, here we're talking about primogenitor as a legally mandated practice where the law says you have to give your whole estate to your eldest son only. And um, same thing with entail. Entail means you cannot sell your estate, you cannot divvy it up, anything like that. And again, we're talking about legally mandated entail, which is um, the norm in England at the time. 
and is an interference with private property because it's basically saying, look, even if you want to divvy up your land amongst all of your sons or whatever, you can't. Or even if you want to divvy up your land and sell some of it, you can't. Primogenitor and entail are two of the big pillars to creating these uh, permanent giant hereditary estates that don't go away. And by um, ending a lot of these practices in America where they had existed and they hadn't been everywhere anyway, as, as far as I know, um, they were usually not mandated in the uh, more Quaker oriented colonies or in New England. But um, by ending these things where they had existed, again, it was a significant change in how society was organized and run. In terms of the war itself, much of it really was a people's war, especially the guerrilla type uh, operations of it. And this, in a way, you could argue was a military revolution. It was a portent of things to come as far as popular insurgencies go. Now, also in the uh, pro-revolution side, you could point out there clearly was some significant class antagonism taking place. It manifested itself in a variety of ways, everything from riots and mutinies to mob violence, especially against Tories, but occasionally even against very wealthy elite Americans who were part of the pro-independence faction, but who were seen as, you know, maybe profiting unfairly from the war or... um, you know, hoarding during times of shortage, that sort of thing. So you do see some class antagonism, though it becomes somewhat muted for a time after the war. It does, of course, flare up periodically throughout American history and, of course, never entirely goes away. Politically, in many areas, more men ended up with the franchise after the war than had had it before, though, admittedly, they continued to, even where they could vote, Most of the time, they would just elect elite men to, quote unquote, represent them, which, of course, is a practice that is still in full swing today. If you just go compare the socioeconomic status of most senators and congressmen to the people that they allegedly represent. Now, something that could at least be argued to be revolutionary is it's absolutely true that prior to the Seven Years War, free adult male North American colonists were probably the freest people in the Western world in regards to taxation and a variety of other questions. And you could argue that the British government's attempts to put more taxation and controls on them after the Seven Years' War was an attack on the status quo. And in this way, you could argue that the American Revolution was defensive or was conservative, was simply seeking to regain and protect pre-existing liberty. However, There is an important intellectual distinction to be made here. In the pre-Seven Years' War era, the freedom of many American colonists was actually due primarily to logistics and to historical accidents. This was the time period of so-called benign neglect or salutary neglect. In other words, they were free just really because Parliament wasn't paying much attention to them, not because their rights were spelled out and Parliament was choosing to respect their rights. So their rights were mostly due to, you know, accidents and logistics and uh, to a lesser extent, the um, English tradition they inherited. And when they talked about their rights before the revolution, they usually would express them in the terminology of traditional rights of Englishmen. By contrast, as a result of the revolution, they made a serious, if, you know, admittedly not fully successful Um, because, you know, I fully acknowledge the failure in practice of the Bill of Rights to protect freedom and to restrain the government, but they made a serious attempt 
to put their rights into written law. In other words, to have de jure and not just de facto or traditional rights. And the rights would be expressed explicitly as being natural rights, sometimes explicitly linked to God, sometimes not, depending on what document you're looking at. But nonetheless, this idea of inherent natural rights, not just rights based on historical tradition or precedent. And this can be seen all over the place, probably most famously in the state bills of rights of the state constitutions of the era, and of course in the Declaration of Independence and later in the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Now, I admit it's more theoretical and certainly was incompletely uh, implemented, but still in the realm of pure ideas, it's a big leap to go from a notion of, you know, rights due to a combination of tradition and parliament not noticing us to a concept of natural rights inherent due to your individuality and your humanity and rights that are explicitly recognized in writing. That is a change. However incomplete and however theoretical it might be, that is a change. And it does have revolutionary implications, even if, even if they weren't always realized at the time or since. Interestingly, some historians of this, old, of this uh, Cold War consensus era in American historiography that I mentioned before did break from the herd and did explicitly connect the American Revolution to other more revolutionary revolutions. For example, the famous mid-20th century American historian R.R. Palmer did so in his famous and influential two-book series, Age of the Democratic Revolution, which came out, I think, volume one in the late 50s, volume two in the early 60s. And um, Crane Brinton also linked the American Revolution to other revolutions in his book, which is a very interesting book, by the way, Anatomy of Revolution, which was originally published in the late 30s, though a revised version came out, I think, in the 60s, if I remember right. Both men explicitly said, oh, yeah, the American Revolution has links and parallels to other revolutions. But, of course, they both did as I'm doing here. They acknowledged that while they characterized the American Revolution as a revolution, it was not as complete or as radical as many of the other revolutions that we think of, right? Now, to be fair, because I'm not saying that the American Revolution was unqualifiedly radical and revolutionary, um, I, I do want to address some of the ways in which you could argue it wasn't a revolution, truly. You could definitely argue it's not a complete revolution in the sense of upending the pre-existing social hierarchy. Carl Degler, in his book Out of Our Past, says this, quote, No new social class came to power through the door of the American Revolution. The men who engineered the revolt were largely members of the colonial ruling class, end quote. And he's right. He's right. I think I mentioned before, um, something like two thirds of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence had previously held some significant office under the British imperial system. And most of the leaders of the independence movement, the so-called founding fathers, fit into one or more of four uh, sometimes overlapping categories. You have the banker financier, as exemplified by Robert Morris. You've got the planters, the plantation owners, as exemplified by pretty much the entire Southern elite. Then you've got the land speculators, um, as exemplified by George Washington, who, of course, was also a planter. And then you've got the merchants, as exemplified by John Hancock. And pretty much every single one of the so-called founding fathers fits into one, if not more, of those categories, with just a handful of exceptions. You know, there, there's a few who were like, you know, top lawyers before the revolution or something like that. 
but most of them fit into one or more of the categories I just mentioned. And it's true that as a result of the revolution, most people who were slaves before the revolution were still slaves after it, although, as we pointed out, gradual emancipation in the North clearly grew out of the revolutionary ideology. It's also true that indentured servants still remained, and in fact, by most accounts, there were more indentured servants than ever after the revolution than before, and their condition was not improved in any way that we can tell at that time. And while it's true that there was some political awakening among some women, for the most part, women's place and women's roles were not significantly changed uh, by the revolution at the time. And you could go on and on and point out, you know, for the most part, most of the people who were super wealthy after the revolution were before. Most of the people who were super poor after the revolution were that before as well, right? So I understand very much the argument that compared to something as extreme as like the Bolshevik Revolution, the American Revolution doesn't look very revolutionary. I understand that. It's all about, though, uh, what you're comparing it to and what your criteria is. All that said, and I could go on and on with more arguments against the revolutionary uh, thesis, I think at the end of the day, though, at least some of the ideological content of the revolution was revolutionary by the standards of the time, even if they were never fully realized uh, intellectually, they were never, they never had it all ironed out and made philosophically consistent back then, and certainly they were not uh, all the radical tenets of the revolution were not ever fully implemented in practice. But just because something is not as large or extensive or dramatic as something else of a similar type, does that necessarily mean that they deserve different labels? In other words, we still call a Category 1 hurricane a hurricane, even though it pales in comparison to a Category 5, and we acknowledge that with the categories, right? And a 75-story building is smaller than a 150-story building, but probably most people would still call both of them skyscrapers. The Appalachian Mountains are a lot smaller than the Rocky Mountains, but most people still refer to both as mountains. So, I don't know, it, it, it's clearly not quite as dramatic or extreme as some other revolutions, but does that necessarily disqualify the American Revolution from being in the category of revolution at all? I, I don't think, you know, I think it's an open question. So we're obviously in the realm of what words mean and who things, um, you know, what things should or should not be labeled. And I fully admit this is not an exact science when you really dig into it. So please don't think I'm trying to put my views forward as gospel, as you probably got a sense from this rambling um, analysis. I'm conflicted myself on this question. I'm, I'm not entirely one side or the other. I'm just trying to explain um you know, why I see things the way I do and why I can kind of see both sides. So um, again, just to, to use the metaphor I mentioned a moment ago, obviously a lifelong Floridian and a lifelong Coloradan are going to be very different uh, in terms of their mental lines about what should be labeled a large hill versus a small mountain, right? They're going to have different uh, standards there. And each could make a plausible case for their particular um, labeling practices. And it, it would be impossible to say for sure, you know, who's, who's really right or wrong. So um, I think there's a case to be made that though it's clearly not as radical of a revolution as the French Revolution, let alone of the communist revolutions of the 20th century, I don't think that that should automatically disqualify the American Revolution 
from being considered a revolution at all. So um, last thing I want to talk about is, was the American Revolution overall a good thing for America and for the world? Um, Perhaps, like someone once said about the Chinese alphabet, and I honestly can't remember where I heard this, um, but someone once said about the Chinese alphabet that the Chinese alphabet was a great step forward at the time that has held its people back ever since. And that's kind of the way I see the American Revolution and its effect, especially on American history ever since. I think William Appleman Williams hit the nail on the head in his analysis of this in his book, America Confronts a Revolutionary World, which I talked about a bit back in episode 54 on three leftist historians every libertarian should read. Williams in that book argues that Americans ideologically want to preserve a perpetual present. They believe that everything that came before America sucks and that any additional revolutions that come after and go beyond the American Revolution are scary and are to be avoided and suppressed. And this notion, of course, goes hand in hand with the basic idea of American exceptionalism. And you can see how, whether consciously and deliberately or not, this mindset works great for the liberal interventionist and neocons on the political, um, of the political elite during the Cold War and then also the War on Terror. Whether it's actually beneficial uh, for most people to see the world in these terms, most Americans especially, and to be governed according to these ideas is, of course, an entirely uh, different question altogether. So maybe the most important thing about the American Revolution is that it shows that one could begin with a very minimal state, as the U.S. uh, central government was after the Revolutionary War, and that it would, within just a couple of centuries, turn into the largest, most powerful, and most expensive state in the history of mankind, which it has. The U.S. federal government is the largest, most powerful, and most expensive government that has ever existed. And it began as a very minimal state in the late 18th century. In other words, the American Revolution might be, above all else, sort of an historical version of the Olive Branch Petition. And just as that petition was a final and vivid illustration that attempts to reconcile with the British were futile, um, perhaps the American Revolution and the subsequent attempt at a constitutionally limited government that followed from it can illustrate the futility of attempting to gain your freedom by fighting off control of one state and building another in its place. Or in other words, the folly of cutting the ring off Sauron's uh, finger and then rather than throwing it in the volcano, just taking it for yourself. If you think that political revolutions in the conventional sense of the term uh, and constitutions are the best way to foster human freedom, may I present to you as Exhibit A, all of American history. Maybe the American Revolution should be seen as a complex, often self-contradictory historical event and era with a lot of admirable things about it, but with plenty of regrettable aspects to it, too. Maybe the best and most useful thing that those of us who believe in principles such as self-ownership and individual rights and liberties can do is to resist the urge to turn the American Revolution to a cartoonish caricature, either of good or of evil, but instead to appreciate the positive aspects of it, but also to acknowledge the negative elements 
and to do our best to learn from both so that we can do better in the future. Just a thought. Thanks for listening. I hope the thoughts and reflections I shared with you were thought-provoking and interesting, whether you agree with all of them or not, and I'm not even sure I agree with all of them. But again, this was an episode that to a large extent was about interpretations. And so by all means, don't take my thoughts here as gospel. What I really hope to do with a show like this, with an episode like this, is to expand your potential view of the topic and to spark you into potentially doing your own research and reading and deep thinking on this topic. And that to me is much more important than whether or not at the end of that you agree with me 100% with all of my opinions and interpretations. I don't at all claim to be the world's greatest expert on the American Revolution or anything like that. Remember, if you have comments that are relevant to this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website, profcj.org. You can also email me at the email address, profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show and follow it on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show in places like iTunes and Stitcher. And you can support the show in various ways. One that I very much appreciate is to just spread the word any way you can to people you think might like it. Also consider leaving ratings and reviews in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can also help the show financially. And like I've said the last few episodes as well, I'm kind of strapped this summer. So anything you can do to help me, I very much appreciate. Go to profcj.org donate. You can donate directly using PayPal or Bitcoin. You can also help financially by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through the links to Amazon, the affiliate links found on my website. So huge thank you to everyone who's donated or bought from my Amazon links recently. Um, a lot of you have uh, responded generously since I, I put out the word that I was, uh, you know, a bit, a bit strapped for cash at the moment because one of my classes got canceled for the summer. So very big thanks to those of you who have chipped in since then. And, um, you know, big hope that, that if you haven't already and you have the ability to, and you're not totally strapped yourself, that you'll consider chipping in as well. So thank you so much for listening to the dangerous history podcast. This concludes this mini series on the American revolution. I hope, I hope I have not wasted your time. I very much understand that time is the most finite resource we have. It's the most unrenewable resource we have and that every single one of us is mortal. So I hope that in spending some of your precious time listening to what I have to say, I have not abused that privilege and that I have helped to spark some thought and uh, increase some understanding on your part and spark you to do your own thinking and your own research. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.